Hi, welcome to the Sayers Conversations podcast. Today, our very special guest is Greg Basser. He is the co-founder and CEO of Century City Entertainment Co., the chairman and CEO of Gentle Giant Media Group, and he is also the co-founder and managing director of the AEP Screen Fund. Enjoy. This is a Sayers Conversation, um, and we're talking to business leaders. We're talking to business leaders in all... I don't really care what the industry is, actually. Um, we're speaking to a gentleman called Greg Basser. Now, Greg, don't talk yet because I, I'm just going to read a few things. So Greg's had over 35 years' experience in the film industry. Broadly speaking, we just call it film in the film or industry. Hollywood. Hollywood. 35 years of Hollywood. Chairman and CEO of Gentle Giant Media Group currently, co-founder and CEO of Century City Entertainment Co. Worked with Village Roadshow Group for 33 years. Co-founded VREG. Uh, Village Roadshow, just say Village Roadshow Pictures Hollywood. Co-founded Village Village Roadshow Pictures Hollywood. He's co-financed and produced 101 Hollywood films with a global box office of 18.5 billion. Over 19. Over 19. Works with the Australian Government on Film Industry Cooperation. Uh, you also have got uh, legal experience in the in the world of film in the US, China, UK, Europe, Australia, most of Asia Pacific. Correct. Yes. Yeah, the inaugural CEO, member of the American Australian Business Council, correct? Big part of G'day USA? Yes. Yes. Um, you are the recipient of the Qantas Ori Kelly International Award 2016 for contributions to the international film industry. Um, and now what's the Variety 500 honoree? What's that? Uh, that's the top 500 influential people in the global Industry in the global film code, industry, yeah, yeah. Um, you're a member, member of Screen Producers Australia, the Australian Academy in Cinema and TV and Arts, actor, in other words, uh, and International Academy of TV Arts and Sciences. Have I got all that right? Yes, I'm also on, an advisor to the Council of Spa. An advisor to the Council of Spa. Now, um, we're keeping everything that we've just said in this, so that that is the official introduction. Yep. So, Greg, welcome to the conversation. Uh, it's uh, it's a great thrill for me to have you here. Uh, Freddie's the producer. I know it's a thrill for Freddie as well. Um, because, frankly, as read out, you um, uh, an icon, a, uh, a player in the world of filmmaking. Yes, I suppose I am. You are. <laughs> now, you spent a lot of time in LA. Is that correct? Is yes, that right? I started going there in 1991. Started working there remotely in 86. Uh-huh. And lived there for 16 years from 2006 till the end of 21. Okay, and so from 91 to 2006, so that's a 15-year time period, you were working at Village here? Working working at Herbert Gear, where I was managing partner and head of the media entertainment group, uh-huh. but also working almost full-time for Village... Uh, having to help them go public in 1988 and then uh, from about 91 going around the world setting up their cinema operations in 21 countries. Right. So when I, I've sort of been on the fringes of the film industry um, in that I've been the chair of the of Afters, Australian Film Television Radio School, I, I actually had a, I had the rights to a book once, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is a cracking story. Uh, I fantasised about the whole... But one of the things which I really genuinely have found... I found it very difficult to actually understand the economics of filmmaking. 
Uh, so maybe if you can talk to me about the economics of making a film out of Hollywood. So the ho- how does the Hollywood money money trail actually work? Well, it's changed a lot over the years, but until, let's say, streaming became really big, which is a few years before COVID, Hollywood film, as opposed to TV, mm-hmm. was based on releasing the film in theatres. And of the 101 movies we made when I was at Village... Um, the average production cost was about a hundred million US dollars. Average, average. Uh, some less, but a lot, a lot more. Mm. And the average amount that you would spend on promoting the project, I'm talking about globally, another hundred million. So every right. time you went to bat, you're making a two hundred million dollar bet. Right. And the economics revolved around a portfolio approach, like lots of investments, and it's a business in and to itself, mm-hmm. um, where some films went make a little, some films lose a little. A number make a lot of money and a number make a, lose a lot of money. So right. you need to have a portfolio because um, there's a very famous saying in Hollywood, I think it's um, down to... I'm trying to remember the guy's name, I'll come back to it. Okay. Um, but there's a, there's a saying that, that you have to adopt in Hollywood, which is no one knows nothing. <laughs> yeah. And... I can tell you about the economics of a film, which I can talk to you about, yeah. but you don't know how, how things are going to work out. And one of the best examples I can give you is uh, Training Day, a film we won, I think, two Academy Awards for, Denzel yeah. Washington. Yeah. Um, that was due to be released on the 19th of September or the 17th of September 2001. Okay. I was about to get on a plane to go to New York yeah. um, for, among other things, a premiere. Yeah. And obviously we all know what happened on the 11th of September yeah. 2001. Yeah. We delayed the release of that film about six weeks. Right. And frankly, great film, but incredibly violent. Right. You probably recall that time. Yep. None of us wanted anything to do with anything that was violent or anarchistic or yep. anything like that. The whole world order dark. had fallen apart. Dark, dark, anything dark wasn't yeah. good. And, and we weren't <laughs> going to get on planes. Yeah. Yep. So that film underperformed incredibly at the movies. Yeah. And then we got nominated for Academy Awards. We won Academy Awards. It was released on DVD, went brilliantly, and we made money out of it in the end. Okay, great, yeah. But you didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You don't know what the zeitgeist is going to do. So 2015 or thereabouts, we greenlit a string of movies that were pretty down the line, what I would call, um, uh, if you like, uh, two base runs um, using baseball because I have to do that <laughs> having lived in America for so long. Yeah. But, you know, two base hits yeah. that always worked, supposedly. Right, yeah, okay. Streaming comes along. In between green lighting and um, release, you have a, a film, uh, a TV show like People vs. OJ, which is really the first, you know, eight to ten right. episode, what I call episodic feature. Yep which had incredible character development in it. Yes, yes, One of the films, yes it did. Yeah. yeah. One of the films we made at that time was a film called Concussion with uh, Will Smith. Yep, remember. If you, if you yep. go back and look at it, very prescient now. Yeah, yeah. I really love that film, but audiences stayed away in droves. And why did they stay away in droves? Because the critics looked at it and the audience looked at it and said, there's no character development. Because when we greenlit that film, audiences wanted... Isn't that interesting? You know, 110 minutes and yeah. no more. So is this is, so? This is part of the battle right now. If you're in the in, if you're in the making of storytelling business, 
because if you've got a if you've got a TV series, then of course character development, not just of mm-hmm. a single character, character development right. over a number of characters yeah. becomes possible. So is it as binary as this? So we're going to do TV, TV or streaming series, and we can do character script development, character development. And if we're going to do 100 minutes of uh, film, it has to be all CGI and, and just blowing things up. No, I don't agree with that, actually. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I was just that um, my wife and I are um, patrons of Myth. So we go to a number of Myth stuff. Yeah. Uh, not, a, not 100 um, films like others. We probably go to about half a dozen or, or round about that. We saw Past Lives, which was a Korean-US um, yeah. production on Sunday night. That was Absolutely mind-blowing, great filmmaking. Really? Really, really fantastic. Okay. And it's not its not me normally. Yeah, yeah. I'm having, having spent the last 30 years of my life or 25 years of my life making Hollywood movies with broad international appeal. Yeah. But it was so well made. Okay. And just captured you. Okay. Right? So I think that still works. I, my point really was... No one knows nothing because you don't know what the zeitgeist is going to be. And one of the one of the biggest disciplines we had at Village was learning when to say no. Uh, well, tough. Because then it does come down to the economics. So it, 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 there's, there's three parts to a film, let's say. Mm-hmm. First one is the creative, mm-hmm. right? So is this going to be a well-written and well-made film? Right, yep. And we had a number of those that worked well. We also had a number that didn't work well because there were other factors that come into it. One of the other factors is how do you market it? Right? How do you get the bums on the seats? Yep. Right? What's the tagline? What's the one sheet? What, what? It, it's no longer the 15-second TV commercial, but whatever it is, how do you get people to pay attention to it? Yep. So the marketing, the marketing would be thought about before greenlit? Oh, absolutely. Yep. You, you have to look at that. And the other part of it, which is part of the marketing, which probably should have said second, which is who's your audience? And that's one of the things I try to work when I'm working with young writers, directors, producers is, okay, you've got this great idea for a film. You know, you, you had a book that you thought was great. Yeah. Who's your audience? Yeah. How much is it going to cost to make? Yeah. It's the standard marketing stuff, really, but it's just playing with very big numbers. Well, you're playing with very big numbers, but you, you're right because who's, who's, who's your addressable audience? Yeah. You know, who's going to buy your product? Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, you know, a, a film that we made um, that was one of the better action movies. So it was an action movie called Edge of Tomorrow. Tom Cruise, yes. Emily Blunt. Yeah, know it. Freddie knows it. The the year it came <laughs> out, it was the critics said it was the best action movie of the summer. Yeah, it did okay, but didn't do as well as it could have done because we didn't address the market the right way. We couldn't get the bums on the seats. Yeah. Because we took the wrong approach. One of my favourite movies we've made, um, there's lots of movies, is Where the Wild Things Are. We've actually made that in Victoria. Yes. And I love that movie because my kids, Freddie, you probably uh, read it when you were a kid as well. You oh, know, yeah. it's every night. Same. You know, Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, Spike Lee made a brilliant version of it where we messed up, mm. and that's Warners and us because we did it with Warners, was we made this great movie that we're all in love with, that marketed it to kids who were scared, scared <laughs> as they, out of their pants, yeah. right? And, again, we missed the mark. If we'd marketed it to... My kids were probably 16 or 17 at the time. Yeah. If we'd marketed it to them, right. we would have done brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, because they, right. they remember it. 
Amen. And they loved, and when they saw it, yes. so, you know, the same with Edge of Tomorrow, same thing. The minute you showed it to someone, they loved it. Yeah. But you have to understand audiences. And that's one of the big problems with um, starter people in the industry, whether they're in Australia or the US, they get this great idea, I've got to make a movie about this. Yeah. Um, and no one wants to see it. So is this a fair observation in, in the Australian context? Um, and this is an observation which uh, actually came about as a result to chatting to and seeing a, um, a conference with Harvey Crumpet. Uh, yep. um, I'm just trying to remember the, the film. I know who the guy you yeah. mean. Yeah, he won an Academy Award for yes, he did. Short and um, and it didn't go so it didn't you know it didn't brain it at the box office. And he was talking about the ten million. I think it was a ten million dollar budget. That and, would have been right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I just thought, oh, this is interesting. And I had a chat to him afterwards. I mean, it's like, well, did you think about making it for seven and spending three on the marketing, or make it for five and spend five on the marketing? So, because the filmmaker says. I've got 10, I'm going to spend 10 on the film and forgets about the fact that actually... Big no, but the filmmaker's not the one who spends the money on... The, right. It's the distributor who spends the money on the right. marketing. Coming back to the economics of it all, because yeah. you asked me that question before. Um, traditional. You release a movie, you show it in theatres. After, in the olden days, six months now, three months pre mm-hmm. the recent changes you would release it on home video, DVD, yeah. electronic sell-through, That must have made rental. a lot of money, jeez. It did, but it was, it's, 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 it's interesting in terms of the economics. And then you'd have pay TV, you'd have free TV, you'd have library. And in fact, there are films that we released, apart from The Matrix, which still earns millions and millions of dollars every year, but there were little films we released that... Up until five years ago, I left Village five years ago, so I don't know what the income is now. But little films that you may never have heard of, a, a little horror film we made called Valentine or <laughs> a little comedy we made called Three to Tango. Oh, yeah, yeah. I that, know, that, were still, <laughs> that were still making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Right. Yeah. So outside, that, so outside of America, year in, year out, 20, 25 years in. Yeah, so, so the long tail does actually play a role in the economics. Yeah, it, it plays an enormous tail in the, uh, 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 role uh, in the economics. Yeah. Um, so, but rule of thumb was that if you're not a studio, if you're like we were where we, where we borrowed money to make our films and where we had to pay a distribution fee, fine, someone's got to distribute it for you. Yeah. Your break even was three, two and a half to three and a half times your costs. So let's say something costs seventy million. Yeah. Uh-huh. Your break even in worldwide boxes was about two hundred and ten million dollars US. Crikey. Not that easy to do. Lots of people and, and so when you start thinking about it an Australian film, for instance, right. um, that is only aimed at the Australian audience, very, very hard to make money. It, it, it's like three million or four million dollars. Right. You've got to do ten million dollars plus in box office, and ten million dollars plus in box office in Australia is yeah. a blockbuster. Yeah, well, you just reminded I, I the the first book I the first book I wrote. Yeah, I was in the top. I was in the top uh, ten best selling there for a little period. Sold ten thousand of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think I got a check for one dollar thirty seven or something like yeah. that. You know, well, the big the, <laughs> the, the big issue we we face as an industry here is we are, if you like the child of a mixed marriage. 
we are heavily influenced by the US yeah. and very heavily influenced by the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you look at the overall Australian box office, about a billion dollars a year. Probably a, maybe a little bit more now, but yeah, about yeah. a billion dollars. Yeah. For Australian, Australian films, and we can talk about what an Australian film is later, yeah. but for Australian films to do well in a year, maybe we do 10% of the box office. You go to Korea or, or Japan or Germany or France and you're between 35 and 55% or more of the local box office. Will be local content. Will be local content. And that's yeah. about English language versus um, yeah. Yeah. foreign language. Yeah. But it's very, very hard for our filmmakers to compete because we're competing against not one language, no. we're competing against US yeah. And the UK. And we do have breakthroughs, uh, but it's really difficult. So 35%, let's say France, and let's just say 35 40% of their yeah. content in the French theatres is going to be French content. Yes. Which then makes me think about streaming and there is, well, there is sort of a discussion afoot around whether the streamers in Australia ought to be made to make more Australian content. Well, I think it's no different to the free-to-air in the old days when it was a 10% quota, yep. Yep. I think it makes a lot of sense to say if you have access to our market, buy in our market. Yep. And the question becomes how much yes. and what do you buy? Yep. Yep. Um, and in countries like France, um, the thing I would say, I should add, is that in most instances, when I'm talking about all these countries with foreign language film industries, their films don't travel either. No. So something that works in France doesn't work in Spain, doesn't work in Italy, doesn't work in Germany per se. Yeah. Like, yeah, breakout, of course. Yes. Just like we had, we had breakout films that were quintessential Australian mm-hmm. who were about Australia with broad accents that have worked outside. I've often thought um, if Mad Max was an, Austra- was an American idea, uh, if it was driven out of the US, Hollywood... There'd already be uh, Mad Max theme parks throughout the world. There'd be Mad Max um, uh, board games. There'd be Mad Max cars <laughs> that I could purchase. There'd be – you get what I'm saying, right? Oh, yeah, yes and no. Mad Max, Mad Max <laughs> is actually a good, good example because of one of the films yeah. we produced. Yeah. Um, but Mad Max, the first Mad Max, was actually um, distributed by Roadshow yeah. back in the day. And Graham Burke tells a story about Byron and George coming into the village um, offices and doing their edit there. Village took that film to Warner Brothers in the US, and we had to they had to get it before my time. They had to get it dubbed because no one could understand. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Mad Max is probably a bad example for you to use that on uh-huh. because Mad Max is a particular type of film it's it's you know it's a m or ma film right um uh, so it's not and and merchandising really truly works for kids there we go right. all right no you i know. like where you're going there i, I suppose okay it, if we say where am i coming from there where i'm coming from is that the americans seem to be very good at getting an idea and turning it into more than just a film some do right and you're thinking principally of probably disney yeah, which probably. is the world's greatest yeah uh, cross-promotional brand. Yeah. It's really, a, for me, it's always, it's a great entertainment company, yeah. 
but it's also for me always been probably one of the greatest brand sellers. You know, yeah. Frozen made more more money mm. out of its merchandising yeah, yeah. than it did out of the film itself, which yeah. made a fortune. Yeah, they're right. they're geniuses at it. Yes, and absolutely fantastic for hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the theme parks, everything. Yeah. Right. So it, it depends on sometimes the company that you work with, yeah. but I would always argue that. Warner Brothers per se in terms of, you know, we made 91 films with them. Um, they, were fan, they were fantastic at marketing film as film. Right. right. Do you see yourself as, uh, first and foremost, you're a film, a, a pure play film person. Um, tell, right, no, uh, give me the key factor for success. In the film industry or me? You. Um, well, I've got a... Law degree. I've got an actuarial degree, so I mix all those skills. Uh-huh. Um, I was very lucky; I got thrown into management very, very early on. So I learned a lot about that and yeah. learned about how to work with people. Uh-huh. And I'm very much a win-win person. So right. I don't believe in zero-sum game. I believe in long-term relationships. Yeah. So was right. it luck that film became the platform for that? Or oh, absolutely. Was, yeah. Um, I ended up at the law firm where I became managing partner as a result of, at the age of 26, um, doing a six-month, eight-month takeover transaction, which was in property, real estate, property and, yeah, property in Queensland, but out of Melbourne. At the end of the transaction, the lawyer on the other side, the partner said, come and work with us. And at 26, I said, well, I'll only come if you make me a partner. I was already a partner yeah. in a small firm. And they said, yes. Yeah. And two weeks, I started in February 1986, and two weeks into that, a contract ended up on my table, which was the Buena Vista Entertainment, which was the Disney home video business yep. distribution agreement for Australia. Because at the time, Village represented Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers represented Disney worldwide. Knew nothing about it but just read it, did it. That's how I got into that. I like it. Right? I got, and I got into cinema by doing two cinema sales. One of them was the ball and cinema uh-huh. uh, for Village Roadshow around the same time. Right. I just fell into it. So it wasn't, it wasn't hey, I'm passionate about film. Right. It was about business, understanding businesses. Probably the thing that I had as a lawyer that I felt was a big skill was an ability to understand clients' businesses and get into it and if you like, understand their businesses as well or better than they did because I would understand the legal part of it but also understand the operational part of it. So it goes, someone taught me very early on, it's a schedule, stupid. Because as a lawyer, you're given a, a document to read or, or you're given a document as a precedent and it'll deal with a whole lot of things that are mechanical but it's always what you put in the schedule right. that really matters from a business perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started reading that and learning that and was sort of lucky, if you like, that the opportunities came along. But a skill I had was I could pick up well, – I did this. We bought Triple M in 1993 mm-hmm. from out of receivership. I got a call saying, um, we want you to come in and talk about we're going to take over Triple M. I knew nothing about broadcasting. So I picked up the Broadcasting Service Act, read it overnight, read a few articles about it. Yeah. And found that I picked up enough to understand. So, if you like, that's so I got into film production 
actually, we were buying half of Warner Brothers' business, cinema business in the UK, Northern Ireland, Germany, Austria, and they were buying half of our cinema business in Italy and Taiwan. So it was a big merger. It was a very big transaction. I think it was about £250 million mm-hmm. back in 95 and 96. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in a, in a meeting in, uh, with Ernst & Young in um, California and they're advising us on the accounting and tax effects of it. And a, young, a partner comes up and says, hey, I've got an idea for you around film insurance. What do you mean film insurance or guarantees? Oh, well, there's some insurance companies that will write you a, po- will, that will write you a policy yeah. that will underwrite the performance of films. Yeah. Seems pretty In- fanciful. I- interesting. So an, a, a, a village executive and I sat down and went down that road a little bit with it. I wrote a policy, mm-hmm. an insurance policy that got underwritten. And off the back of that, we raised $200 million US revolving of debt and $20 million, $16 million of equity and set up what is Village Roadshow Pictures Hollywood or international uh, business, global business. And Graham Burke went and spoke to Terry Semmel and Bob Daly, who were the co-chairs of Warner Brothers at the time. And Graham had been working with Warner Brothers since the early 70s, 71 in fact, um, and said, oh, couple of my guys have put this together. You wouldn't be interested in doing it, would you? And they said, yes. Um, and that's really how I got involved in film production on a global basis. It was yep. wearing my suit, if you like, yep. writing something, a, a policy that people then signed yep. that allowed us to borrow a whole lot of money. And I remember talking to one of my colleagues. We were sitting in a boardroom in New York, um, playing in Wall Street in a in a market we hadn't seen before that we didn't think we had any interest. What the hell are we doing here? How lucky are we? Got it. Um, and that facility lasted for twenty ninety six. Actually, ninety yeah twenty until until I left yeah. two thousand and eighteen. Yeah, great. Right, so twenty two years. years. It was still going when I left. And on average, we had about a billion US dollars at any one time to invest in film. Okay, so let's talk about, let's fast forward to now, today, um, making film. In, so you're back in Australia, you're living here. Um, obviously, you've still got you know, contacts around the world. Yep. Um, but I, I, we read, we, we read not that long ago that you've, sort of, you've created a fund, a screen fund. Um, and my assumption is because you'd like to see well, some great stories being told. I don't know. Just tell us about the fund. I'm going to wind back a little bit Mm -hmm. because one of the things that working at Village and working in Hollywood gave us exposure to was the global marketplace. And the global marketplace just both in terms of audiences but also in terms of where you make films. And one of the things we saw was that both in the US and elsewhere in the world there were very significant incentives. Yes, because including here, there's incentives for people. There to are film. now. Yeah, there are now. Yeah, right. But there, one of the things about making film or TV in a country is that it is incredibly accretive from an economic perspective, in terms of economic activity, GDP and jobs. Yeah. Right. And the reason government governments don't have incentives to give money away for free. 
they they have the incentives because it, it's a net positive for the country. So you're able to, just for example, you're able to present to a government if you put a hundred million into this. You know, but, uh, we can show you case studies where that hundred millions turned into what three. Now, a hundred million in economic activity will turn into close to a billion. There we go. It'll probably give you GDP increase of about one hundred and seventy million. And if 100 million in, ended up employing, let's say, 1,000 people in full-time jobs, yeah. that creates another 5,000 jobs in the okay. community. And there's eminent research that proves all of that. So we were investing in films that were with budgets of about $1.2 billion a year. Um, we didn't have 100% of it. We had 25 to 50% of those. And we were, we were going where the incentives were. So one of the things that Graham Burke and I were able to, um, I suppose, with clean hands present to government is we're involved in making these films globally. Yeah. We don't care, or our partners have don't care where they're made. We're Aussies. We want to make them in Aussies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So over the 20 years or so, I counted up the other day, I've been involved in 24 films made in Australia that have included about $4 billion of budget and about two and a half, right? And all of those were driven by the fact that there, particularly post-2007, there were world... um, Not leading... Well, the incentives were created a level playing field for us. Yep, got it. Create heaps of jobs and economic activity and things. Yeah, but so we're playing field with the comp- our competitors around the world. Around the world, yes, including in the US. And we have the we have a problem that we are at the bottom of the world. Mm-hmm. And even though those of us who travel regularly know that it's no big deal, you get on a plane at yep. eleven o'clock at night and you land at seven the following two mornings later. But you very hard to get people out, and we tried really yep. hard to get people. We've spent a lot of time trying to get the industry to understand we need to create the facilities. Not build them and, and they will come, but if you don't build them, they won't come. So <laughs> the new soundstage in Melbourne is going to make a huge difference post-strike. Uh-huh, yeah. Because we now have a world-class facility. Yeah, yeah. We, I had a lot of trouble bringing stuff to Melbourne. We had to take it to Sydney or Queensland because we didn't have the sound stages. But So that was one part of it. Mm-hmm. The next part of it for me was... Of 101 films, let's take the last 50 films. Every film involved that we made had an Aussie in front of the camera in a not minor role and every film we made had Aussies behind the camera in meaningful roles, right? Oh, yep. But the one area we didn't have that much prominence, prominence in was writers. So hence, we talked about the business yes. stuff I've done, but one of some of the, um, if you like, talent development stuff I've done have included getting Aussies over to the AFI in um, LA in partnership with Screen Australia and now the AAA, Australian-American Association. Um, At your old Mm -hmm. um, uni, we support um, students who can't afford to live in Sydney to come to Sydney, and that's still running. But on the writing stage, and that's all about getting better storytellers, if you send people to AFI in... um, LA, which is probably the leading film school in the world for a two years master's, they'll come back to Australia with skills and experiences they would never get access to. But in Australia, one of the things we've had a lot of issues with, even though there's a lot of very, very talented writers who actually do participate in the industry a lot more, 
is that when films come to Australia to be made or TV shows, they've already got a script. And as a creative executive or a production executive, you don't care where the person comes from. You just like want the story. Yeah. So really driven by uh, Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, who we made a film in the heart of the sea with Chris Hemsworth back about 2010, 2011. I got to know them. And Brian's always had this passion for um, talent development and also the thought that there's got to be a better way to develop quicker. And part of that is um, mentoring. Because writers go off, as you know, and write and they'll emerge and you'll see a script and you'll say, oh, that's no good. Go away, do better. So they set up this uh, program called Impact in the US. And then in early 2019, as a result of an outreach by Film Vic, or Vic Screen as it's now known, um, they approached me and said, hey, we want to bring it to Australia. I mean, this is important in terms of the whole scheme of yeah, where it works. Of course, yeah. Um, and so I partnered with Brian and Ron to bring impact to Australia. And we've done three um, three uh, sets of all seasons, as I like to call it, where you we do an outreach to anyone. We had about a 1,000 applicants for 10 projects. Wow. And over the three years, we've done 33 writers and 27 projects that have really lifted the um, visibility of our um, creators of original IP. It's pretty impressive. It's very impressive, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and every one of those... So it's, a, it's an eight-week boot camp uh-huh. where they get an A-list showrunner or scriptwriter to mentor them. And in week 10, they have to present their project right but they get to present it to three to four hundred producers studios agents around the world and we do it we do it virtually so we do yep. one in melbourne at 2 p.m on a wednesday brilliant and then we do it the following day at 2 p.m la time right. on the wednesday brilliant and every one of our writers has kicked on their career uh there's a project that is in production now from our first year i think and there's probably three or four on the cusp. But as part of closing the circle that I saw, we had great people in front of camera, great people behind the camera, great locations, great um, facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a great, we had a, a world equaling um, incentive system. Government system, yep. Writers, yeah. really important. So people would look to Australia as a place that generates original IP. For global audiences. Yes, and that's why I think as an industry we have to f- think. We can't think about what you know, Aunt Sophie down the road wants to yes. see. A pure, a pure play Australian story is going to struggle. Yes. Yeah. Just I like any it. pure play, yeah. any story. You okay. want to, if you make something that is quintessentially American that only talks to Americans, it won't travel. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, Primary Colours is a great... I mean, I know that's a long time ago. Yeah. But that's a great... That John Travolta political thing. 60 million in the US, 6 million outside. Right? So you're investing in the creation of writers, giving writers, um, well, giving them greater skills and giving them a marketplace. And creating a understanding in the global marketplace, particularly Hollywood, but also the UK, that Australia is a great place to find original IP and there are great writers here. And there are, there are and a lot of them are playing already, yeah. but... Getting them to focus on coming to Australia. Now, the producer offset for film 
products that are released theatrically is helpful as well because you get a 10% uptick if it's released theatrically. But that was closing part of it. Yeah. But the one thing that's always been missing, I know it's been a road to get here, but... I'm, We're here. <laughs> the one thing that's always been missing in, in um, Australia has been a long-term institutional um, source of financing... Yeah. Of projects made in Australia. Yep. And and that's what that's what led to this idea to set up AP Screen Fund. And that is, as I said before, in the twenty years I was at Village um, doing the production business, right? The thing that we never really had was a lack of access to funds. Okay. Right. Our issue was always choosing the right pictures. So if we didn't choose the right films, our ability to access the funds got less, yep. but we had a billion dollars on average at any one time. In Australia, the big problem is access to funds, and I suppose part of that is also access into Hollywood, but access to funds. Uh, and so you know, the average film in Australia takes seven to nine years to be made. And that's because they spend all but two of it... Um, trying to find the money. Trying to find the money. And that segues back into the point we were talking about before about no one knows nothing. Yeah. Something that's in the zeitgeist today... Well, good Very luck. hard for it to be in the zeitgeist in seven to nine years, particularly now, because, because of the you know, progress in the internet and yeah. information. Okay, so just benchmark that for us. So seven to nine years for a pro, for an Australian project to get up and running, yeah. or to be completed. Yeah. What US? How long? Well, it can be ten years because that's what the fugitive was. So this yeah. this yeah. what we call development hell, but that's not money. That's getting it right. Yeah. Um. Grand Torino, uh, Clint Eastwood movie we made a, a cracker. I have no idea why I didn't win any awards. It was <laughs> Clint, Clint. Clint was fantastic in that film. It was just brilliant. I think that was like six to nine months. Yeah. No, I don't know when he started. All I know is we greenlit it yeah. like in June. And then bang. And it was on screens yeah. later that year. Okay, so back to, the, back to the fund then. So the fund is designed to fully finance film and TV made in Australia to try and create an infrastructure that, as I said, existed in the US and exists in the UK. I mean, it's amazing. Got to get there still, but oh, we're, yeah. we're going down that route. Well, you know, we want to help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what we're taking advantage of is Australia's um, participation in the global incentive thing. So you, you nowadays with state and federal assistance, you can attract between, say, 35 and at the extreme, 55% of your Australian spending incentives, federal and state. And I'm very pleased to know that really from a bipartisan perspective now, both sides recognise yes, what true. it does for jobs and the economy, which it took us years and years. Ten years ago, we got knocked back because yep. we were told it was just like the car industry. Right? And... <laughs> Well, well, it was an excuse at the time because yeah. we'd had a lot of support and then they pulled support because for, for good reasons, 
politically, I would yeah. argue not fiscally, you yeah. know, but... Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to make a film. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's say I've got everything in place except for the money. So... Have you got have you got a, like a post office box that I go to? What how's all this work? So well, this is <laughs> slightly different. Um, we don't we don't fund development. We fund projects for global marketplace. Yep, that's very very important. Yep, right. And we fund projects that effectively have a distributor in place. So one of the one of the biggest issues is that because of just the the way we are in Australia. Most producers don't have access to money. Right. And so when they want to make something, they need someone to fund it from day one. They don't even have access to... Development funds. Well, not forget about the development funds. They don't even have access to money in the interim. Right? There's a great uh, fund called Fulcrum that Emil, Hirsch set, Emil Sherman sorry, yeah. set up yes, okay. with the backing of CBUS. Yeah, great. That is a big player in providing some of the finance today. Right, but it's a lender, and it lends against rebates and incentives. Great, big tick, and I think to some extent lends to against pre-sale agreements. Yeah, but it's a purely loan facility that doesn't really have access into Hollywood. And not a criticism. I, I think what Emil pulled together was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Right, um, but. What we really needed was something like we had at Village or people like um, Skydance or Legendary or, or uh, uh, there's a company called, I think, um, Imagine in the UK. It's not the Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, but yeah. like that. That would invest, co-invest with studios or invest 100% to make a project work. And if if you have funding to make a project work, you can you can have much more control over your IP and the studios prefer that because then they don't have to cash flow, they don't have to worry about it on the ground. It's what we call a negative pickup. In other words, they pay for it after it's been delivered. A negative pickup. I love it. You know, you, you, you're making me think about um, many, many years ago I was asked if I'd like to have, have a job running a footy club. Yeah. And I said, you know what, I would like that. My heart says yes, but my mind, my brain says no because you don't understand the economy of that industry. Yeah. And it's one of the things that has always interested me, intrigued me, is the economy of the film industry, you know, which just goes right back to the, the initial question. Yeah. Like, actually how the thing works is like you've got to have 30 years' experience in order to be able to absolutely understand... Well, just understand the economics of the, of the filmmaking. And also what drives the industry. Right. right. Because in one sense, it's a very low margin business. Yeah. Right? As I said before, it's like a portfolio business. You've got to have lots and lots of plays. Yeah. But what streaming has brought along, what... what Technology has brought along in terms of our ability to deliver across multiple platforms actually in a way makes the industry much more viable than it was in the past. Good. Because previously, as I said, you'd make a make a film or a TV show. Yep. In TV, you had to get to 66 episodes before you get into syndication, yep. before you could make any real money. Right. So you had what they called deficit financing yep. for TV. Yep. Film, you if you're an Australian, what would happen is you'd 
pull the project together and even in the current climate, you'd end up with incentives and rebates that might cover, let's say, 40% of your budget. You'd go to Joel Perlman at Roadshow and he'd distribute it and give you a minimum guarantee, like he'd give you a pre-sale for it. Yep. And that might be anything from a couple hundred thousand to a million and a bit. Yep. Then you'd have to find a sales agent who would then go and sell it for you around the world and hopefully you'd get enough to fill the gap but often you wouldn't, so then you'd have to go and approach agent film agencies and ask them for an equity investment. Yeah. The problem with that is that from it's it was how things get made, and still today how things get made. The problem is you're giving all the upside away, right? You you are limiting your downside, but also it takes you forever yeah. to get it done. But rightly so, a sales agent will charge you anything from twenty to thirty percent of revenues as a distribution fee. So by the time the money trickles down, there's not much left and it takes forever to get there. I've got it. Right. Okay. So we've been talking for a long time, Greg. Oh, we have too, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. Now, this is Freddie. Freddie, um, part of the good one, who produce on behalf of Sayers, this podcast. Um, and I always, at the end, I just ask if there's a question that, you know, that a young Freddie might have for our guests. So, Freddie, um, over to you, mate. Thank you, Russ, and thank you, Greg. Yep. Um, I was just thinking, listening to you uh, speaking here, I think Australia has a really good, and maybe it's just Melbourne, um, but our lawyers, our, our film and our TV industry seems to be made of lawyers or ex-lawyers. That's globally, mate. Yeah, right. So I'm wondering, what is it about uh, law that becomes such a, a run-up to this industry? I have no idea, but <laughs> you will find there's a significant number of executives in Hollywood who have law degrees, yeah. never practice law, right. and a lot of the time never even taken the bar. Right. I don't know, maybe... I, I can't answer the question because I have no idea. I had, well, I, I ended up by... i tell you one thing. If it's costing you... What's the average? 200 million? If it's, yeah. co- if it's costing you 200 million and you want to get the thing distributed throughout the world and do... There's a lot of deals involved. There's a lot of contracts involved in the making of a film, <laughs> I'd guess. Yeah, I know, but... <laughs> the lawyers, as I said, a lot of the lawyers that are involved have never practiced law. No, no. And I never, well, I did end up practicing law relating to borrowing money and doing deals with mm-hmm. studios, but I've never really practiced law yeah. of making films. Um, just, f- I haven't answered all your questions on the fund. Yeah. Basically, we're taking advantage of the way the industry buys projects now, right? And the industry now buys projects on a cost plus basis, right? And that's because they want to stream. And there's nothing wrong with that. The more content is being consumed. Ten years ago, the major buyers probably spent about $30 billion US a year mm-hmm. buying English language content. Last year, they spent $140 billion, Yeah. Right? So it's a much bigger industry today. Um, and... The unique thing that we find ourselves in with the fund is that we still have great incentives and rebates and we have studios, including streamers, that are prepared to buy stuff on a cost-plus basis or want to come to Australia and want us to enable them to make their projects and pay for them when they're finished. Got it. So if I was to ask you in closing, mm-hmm. the I want you to magic up a thriving Australian film industry. Like I want you to click your fingers and all of a sudden, bang, something's happened. What would that be? That would be a fund 
in addition to ours, not just us, yep. where the global marketplace would look to Australia the way they look to the UK now. The UK is over $10 billion a year in production, in drama. As a result of COVID, we're about, I don't know what it was last financial year, but the year before it was $2.3 billion. Pre-COVID, it was about $900 million. So one of the reasons for also putting the funding in place is how do we take advantage of the visibility we have as an industry globally? As uh, a result of COVID. Because as a result of COVID, because yes. it's the only safe place in the world yeah. to make film and TV. Fantastic. Yep. How do, and they came out and saw that it wasn't that hard to come out and what a great country we have. Yes. And I'm not saying I'm an Aussie, obviously, but yeah. you know, it really is, from their perspective, they loved coming here. And the skill of the workforce? Everything. The skill, yep. the, how hard our... Our workers work. Yep. They work. We work really hard. Yep. Um, we are much, If we spend five million dollars an hour on a TV series, it's probably worth ten to fifteen US. There we go. Right, both in terms of productivity and what yes. we can get out of it. Yep. Um, so, the ideal thing for me is that there's more than just us providing funding. We can provide between three and five hundred million a year when we're up and running, which is a lot of money, obviously. Um, but there's other players in the marketplace doing the same thing that will mean that just like the UK, 10 years ago the UK industry was under $4 billion a year. Now it's more than $10 billion. I'm talking about the imported stuff. Um, love to do that. Love to see us at $5 billion and beyond. Good man. It's been great chatting to you, Greg. Uh, sincerely, I'm still, every time I have a conversation with you, I learn more about this thing called the film industry and uh, one day we're going we're gonna to get to make one. Yeah, great, mate. Good to chat. Look forward to it.